The Sermon on the Mount explains and applies God's law for the citizens of God's kingdom. One becomes a citizen of his kingdom by obeying Christ's command to repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15 Jesus began his sermon by defining eight characteristics of a kingdom citizen. In our relationship with God, we are to be poor in spirit, mourn, gentle, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. In relating to others, we must be merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and ready to suffer persecution. Matthew 5, 3-12. The reality of persecution drives many believers to either isolate themselves from the world or compromise with the world. Jesus, however, informed us that as citizens of his kingdom, we must not hide or conceal ourselves from the world, but instead influence the world. As Matthew 5, 13 to 16 tells us, we as kingdom citizens are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. As salt, we are responsible for purifying society and preserving it from moral decay. Corruption must be confronted. Immorality must be denounced. Justice, dignity, and equality must be promoted. As light, we must pronounce the gospel of the kingdom in both word and deed so that the darkness of sin can be dispelled. Like a city of fire on a mountainside, the gospel must be lived out for all to see. Like a candle in a house, the gospel must be proclaimed to everyone with whom we have contact. As the Talmud states, it is permitted to put a lump of salt in a lamp to make it burn brightly. We must act as salt, and when we do, our light will shine more brightly. Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 that our light is manifested in our good works. According to Ephesians 2, 9 and 10, these good works were prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What are these good works established in eternity past to which we are to conform our behavior? According to Titus 2, 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless work and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, sell us for good works. Since we are saved from every lawless work, to be zealous for good works, it stands to reason that good works are the opposite of lawless works. Hence, good works are those things that conform to God's law. As we obey God's law, we reflect the light of Jesus, and others see that light and glorify our Father, who is in heaven. Conformity or obedience to God's law should not come as a surprise to kingdom citizens. We should not be surprised. Previously in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus characterized us as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 5, 10 states that we would be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Righteousness, dekaiosune, is obedience to God and his laws. Such righteousness is moral in that it conforms to God's law and social in that it promotes civil rights, a just judicial system, integrity in business, and dignity in interpersonal relationships. As kingdom citizens, we are to desire God's law. 
And by obeying his law, we reflect Jesus' light to those trapped in Satan's kingdom of darkness. Therefore, it is of utmost importance to know and understand the law of God's kingdom. As such, in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, Jesus set forth to explain both his relationship and our relationship to God's law. This pericope is perhaps one of the most significant in all of Scripture because Satan has shrewdly planted lies that Jesus annulled God's law and abolished the Old Testament. As early as the 2nd century A.D., the idea that Jesus abolished God's law began to spread in part due to a Gnostic heretic known as Marcion. Marcion was a bishop of the church, a shipbuilder by trade, and considered the most dangerous amongst the Gnostics. He was the first to coin the term Old Testament. He believed that the God of the Old Testament produced evil, whereas the Jesus of Paul's teachings was responsible for righteousness. As well, he rejected the entire Old Testament and any New Testament writings that he deemed too Jewish. Marcion proposed a limited canon based only on the writings of Paul and Luke. He even went so far as to remove from Paul and Luke anything that did not agree with his bias. Many opposed Marcion, not the least of which was Tertullian, who wrote five books against Marcion and his heresy between A.D. 207 and 208. While Marcion's canon was never accepted, his false dichotomy of the scriptures, i.e. Old and New Testament, negative views of God's law, and his anti-Semitic misinterpretations of the New Testament continue plaguing the church today. Today, many professing believers have adopted this so-called new morality. New morality claims that the only law binding upon people is the law of love. As long as love is the goal, no action can be deemed immoral. Adherents of new morality believe that to judge sin, to condemn sexual promiscuity or deviance, or just to oppose a woman's right to, be, to a safe abortion is to be described as unloving and unjust. You see, my friends, new morality is just another form of antinomianism, which teaches that Christians are free from the obligations of God's law. By removing God's law, antinomianism results in spiritual anarchy. And such anarchy rears its head in the idea that you can live a life of sin and still be forgiven. In reality, antinomianism has produced an entire generation of professing Christians who are still dead in their sin. Unless we be deceived by Satan's lies or these worldly philosophies of morality, we as kingdom citizens must know and understand the law of God's kingdom. To that end, Jesus deals with two questions, two issues related to the law of the kingdom. First, what does the king say about the law? And second, what is the kingdom's citizens' responsibility to God's law? So let's begin with the king and his law. The king and his law. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 17 and 18. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now remember, as a rabbi, 
Jesus was responsible for teaching his disciples how to interpret and apply God's law properly. However, when Jesus taught, the people were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Luke 4.32 Well, see, when other rabbis taught, they quoted what other rabbis had said about the text to establish the authority of their interpretation and application. However, Jesus' teaching was distinct. He quoted no other person when he interpreted and applied God's word. Several expressions demonstrate Jesus' authority in teaching. Statements such as, truly I say to you, are meant to convey that Jesus was an authority to himself. Matthew 5.18 As well, the formula you have heard, but I say to you, conveys his authority. Matthew 5.21-22 The phrase you have heard refers to the scriptures, whereas I say to you denotes Jesus' authoritative explanation of the text. Jesus has that authority to interpret and apply God's law because he is God. Now, God's law was established since the foundation of the world was laid. When God called Israel to be his kingdom, he gave them his law. However, the people of Israel rejected God's kingdom law, and he removed them from the promised land and sent them into exile and captivity. Following their exile, God allowed them to return to the land. Upon returning, there was great interest in obeying God's law. In response, the Pharisees were established to study, teach, and protect God's law. For four centuries, the Pharisees were the de facto teachers of the law. Accordingly, there was no other authority on the law apart from the authorities they quoted. Now Jesus comes along upsetting the apple cart of four centuries of Pharisaical interpretation. No doubt, many, including the disciples, began to question Jesus' view on God's law. In response to the questions, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now the law technically refers to the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Torah, but generally can apply to the Hebrew Scriptures as a whole. The prophets refer to the historical books, the twelve minor prophets and the five major prophets. When used together, the phrase the law and the prophets was a standard designation for the entire Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the Hebrew Scriptures. Now the verb abolish, kataluo, means to completely invalidate something which has been in force. In other words, Jesus says he did not come to make the law or the prophets invalid. Again, he reiterates, I did not come to abolish the law. Instead, Jesus says, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. See, the verb fulfill, parao, does not mean to bring to an end. Some wrongly think that since Jesus fulfilled the law, believers, we do not need to obey it. In turn, they teach that faith has supplanted or nullified the law. However, Paul stated in Romans 3.31, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish histeme, we establish the law. The term establish is what our faith does to the law. Establish, histeme, means to institute permanently by enactment or agreement. In other words, our faith does not invalidate the law, but 
institutes it permanently upon us. In actuality, fulfill, plurao, refers to proclaiming completely or providing fully. Understanding that fulfill means proclaiming completely underscores the truth that Jesus came to complete God's revelation to humanity. At this point, humanity has the law and the prophets, i.e. the Hebrew scriptures. But, as Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 states, God, after he spoke, Long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Now notice with me two critical statements in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The first critical statement is, God spoke. He is the source of revelation. The verb spoke, laleo, in verse 1 is a progressive past, meaning that God spoke over a span of time. The many portions in many ways refer to the fact that God's revelation was progressive. He did not give it all at once or to one person or in the same manner. The second critical statement is that God spoke via human agents. Previously, God provided his revelation to the fathers via the prophets. Now God has spoken to us in his Son. That is, God's revelation was not complete until Jesus came. The verb spoken, laleo, in verse 2 is what we call a completed past, conveying the idea that God has finished speaking. So, verse 1, God has spoke is a progressive past. He spoke over a period of time. Now, in verse 2, God has spoke through his Son. This is now God has finished speaking. By changing that word laleo from the progressive to a completed past demonstrates the continuity between the prophet's and son's words. It effectively confirms that each prophetic word has been building to a crescendo, namely God's final word to humanity by his son. Jesus did not come to bring a new revelation or law, but to complete what was previously given. Bridget Young used states, and surely to fulfill means to complete in the sense of bringing to perfection, not as Christians have all too often interpreted to render obsolete, but to fulfill in such a way as to perfect a foundation on which to build further. Indeed, Jesus completed or perfected the revelation of God's will. As such, the scriptures are the firm foundation upon which we can build our faith. What are you building your faith on? Best be the word of God. Now Jesus is the final word from God in the progression, the progression of revelation. According to Thomas G. Long, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 shows that the new revelation that God has given us in His Son is a continuation of the revelation given to the forefathers. God's revelation completed in His Son is a unit, a harmonious totality in which the old is fulfilled in the new. Again, the verb fulfill means to proclaim completely or provide fully. This idea of providing fully is underscored in Lalanita's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. 
It states that fulfill means to give the true or complete meaning to something, to give the true meaning to, to provide the real significance of. Strong's Concordance also clarifies this definition. It states that fulfill means to cause God's will as made known in the law, to be obeyed as it should be, and God's promises given through the prophets to receive fulfillment. In other words, Jesus came to reveal the true meaning and real significance of God's law. As such, through this sermon, Jesus says, You have heard, but I say unto you. As we'll see later in Matthew 5, 21-22 and 27-28. That phrase, you have heard, but I say unto you, does not mean Jesus was changing the law. Instead, as John MacArthur states, he is simply restating God's original intention because the rabbis had so perverted the Old Testament that he has to raise the standard back up to where God put it in the first place. Now, you might protest and you might quote Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Christ is the end of the law. However, you armchair theologians miss Paul's point by being lazy and not studying the term end. The term end, telos, means the intended goal. Hence, Jesus is not the termination of the law, but the goal of the law. The law, indeed all of the Hebrew scriptures, point to him and find their fulfillment or purpose in him. Furthermore, Jesus could not alter, amend, or annul God's law. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, You should not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Any attempt to change God's law would make Jesus a sinner and not be the sinless Savior. Furthermore, Jesus said in John 10, 35, The scriptures cannot be broken. The term broken, luo, means to annul, do away, or declare unlawful. If the scriptures cannot be declared unlawful, then the law contained therein cannot be annulled or done away. Now, having stated his position on the law, Jesus now emphasizes the permanence of the law in Matthew 5.18. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The term truly, amin, implies that what is said is true. The Greek amen transliterates the Hebrew term amen. In the law, amen was placed at the end of a statement to underscore its truthfulness or reliability. Deuteronomy 27, verse 15. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. In essence, Jesus is saying, you may not think that I really meant what I just said, but I do. Further, he conform, confirms the truthfulness of his previous statement by saying that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law. The smallest letter, iota, of the Hebrew alphabet is known as the yod and is about the size of the English comma. The stroke refers to the small hook-like appendages that distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. The verb shall pass, parakomai, means to cease to exist or pass out of use. Jesus' point is that not even the smallest letter or smallest part of a letter of God's law, 
and the Hebrew Scriptures, will pass out of use until all is accomplished. Now the phrase, until all is accomplished, refers to the fulfillment of all the prophecies contained in the Scriptures. Specifically, Jesus refers to the prophecy of the renewed heaven and earth, until heaven and earth shall pass away. That prophecy was first pronounced in Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. In other words, God's law and all of Scripture will continue to be relevant and in force until the end of time as it is currently known. Does that mean that in the renewed heaven and earth, the Scripture and God's law will cease? No. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what does the king say about his law? He says that it's still valid and operational. He did not annul it or abolish it. Instead, he elevated it to its proper place, the place he originally intended. That is, the law was intended to be the means by which believers could imitate God's holiness. Now, having explained his relationship to the law, King Jesus now deals with our relationship as kingdom citizens to the law of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notice he begins with whoever, us. This is meant to include all believers. Remember, Jesus is speaking only to his disciples, so therefore he is directing his words to them. Specifically, he speaks to those who annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do us the same. First, Jesus addresses believers who annuls one of the least of these commandments. The verb annuls, luo, means to break, do away, or declare unlawful. It's the same term used back in John 10, 35. The scriptures cannot be broken. In other words, Scripture cannot be done away. Nevertheless, this is precisely what some believers are guilty of doing. They break God's law by willfully doing what God forbids or failing to do what God commands. Some believers, perhaps even some of you, are guilty of doing away with God's law or declaring it to be unlawful. In other words, you claim that God's law is no longer binding upon you as God's people. For example, some twist the meaning of Romans 6, 14 to 15. For, what, for sin shall not be a master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Accordingly, the claim is made that believers have been freed from obedience to God's law because of God's grace. Now this idea that grace superseded the law is fatally flawed. If an individual, if you're pulled over for speeding and the police officer graciously does not issue a ticket to you, does his grace abolish the speeding laws? No. The officer's grace does not nullify the speeding law. Hence, God's grace does not nullify his law. Also, ask yourself, from which law have you been freed? 
there are two crucial phrases in Romans 6.14. Sin shall not be a master over you. In that phrase, the term master, curio, means to be ruled by something. You shall not be ruled by sin. Another word for rule is law. In the phrase, you are not under law, the term under, hupa, refers to being under the control of something. Before salvation, we were under the rule or law of sin. Since we are no longer controlled by sin, we are no longer ruled by the law of sin. To claim that we are no longer under the law of God, then, would be to equate the law of God with the law of sin. However, these two laws cannot be equated because the one wars against the other. Romans 7, 22 to 23 and 25. I joyfully concur or agree with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. As another example, some, perhaps even some of you, twist the meaning of Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The claim then is made that Jesus freed us from obedience to God's law. However, in the context of Galatians 5, Jesus did not redeem us from the law of God, but rather the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. The curse of the law is what? Death. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by paying the penalty of sin. But just because he removed the curse doesn't mean he removed the law. In Matthew 5.19, Jesus warns us not to break or declare unlawful even one of the least of these commandments. That Jesus warns us not to break or dismiss God's law would be utterly ridiculous if he broke or dismissed the law. After all, Jesus commands believers to follow him. How can we follow Jesus if he broke or dismissed God's law? Obviously, Jesus did not break or dismiss God's law. Indeed, he obeyed it in all points. Now, the term least, alekistos, refers to those laws that are not as important as others. In other words, some of God's laws are weightier than others. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they neglected the weightier provisions of the law, Matthew 23, 23. When asked what the greatest commandment of the law was, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. While not all of God's commands are equal in weight, they are all equally important because they are the commands of the king. Therefore, if we break or declare unlawful even the most minor point of the law, we will be guilty of sin and offending God. As James 2.10 states, for whosoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Are you guilty of breaking or ignoring or disobeying even the least of the commandments? If so, you're guilty of breaking the law.
God's law. Notice Jesus goes on to address those of you who teach others to do the same. The verb teach, didasco, means to instruct someone what to do. That is, they instruct other believers to disobey or declare unlawful God's commands. Those believers, and this applies, if this is you, it applies to you, if you break or ignore or instruct others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They are least, elekistos, implying that believers who disobey or teach others to disobey God's law will have a lower ranking or office in God's kingdom. And my question is, how many pastors and ministers will have a lower ranking or office in God's kingdom because they are guilty of teaching others, teaching their sheep, that God's law has been done away? How many have led generations of believers in disobedience to God's law? Something to think about. Now on the other hand, and I pray this is you, those who keep and teach God's law will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The verb keeps, pueo, means to perform, to do, to obey. Again, the verb teach, didasco, means to instruct someone what to do. The verb called, kaleo, means to appoint to a rank or office. The term great, megas, implies a more significant ranking. Hence, those who obey and instruct others to obey God's law will be appointed to a more significant office in God's kingdom. I pray that, that applies to you. But examine yourself. What's your relationship to God's law? What are you teaching others about God's law? Now having stated that no one, including himself, could alter or annul God's law, Jesus now clarifies that our, the, our obedience to the law. He states that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as previously examined, righteousness, kaiusene, is obedience to God and his law. See, the Pharisees appeared righteous or law-abiding, but their righteousness was only skin deep. Outwardly, they conformed to the law, but inwardly, they were disobedient to God's law. They were motivated by self-indulgence and plotted how to lie, steal, and cheat. And it was their inward hypocrisy for which Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25-26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that outside of it it may be clean also. You see, outward displays of conformity or obedience are nothing more than hypocrisy if your heart or your inward motivation is not also pure and right before God. You know, we're so quick to call someone a Pharisee for holding believers to man-made rules or traditions. And while true, a Pharisee is also one who outwardly obeys the law but does not inwardly conform to the law. So are you a Pharisee? Are you outwardly going through the motions, but inwardly, you're not? Inwardly, you're, you're plotting and lying and cheating and stealing? Jesus tells his disciples that their righteousness or obedience must exceed that of the Pharisees. That is, true righteousness must be inward conformity and outward obedience to God's law. How many of you are making an empty show of religious devotion? 
Friends, listen, it is not enough for you to claim you're righteous. God wants to see your righteousness. And God sees what man can't. God sees the heart. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, those who do not inwardly conform to God's law will have no part in God's kingdom because in reality their heart is still dead in trespass and sin. In other words, they're not genuinely saved. Does that describe you? See, at the moment of salvation... True kingdom citizens enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. Now the new covenant is a threshold or marriage covenant that was promised to Israel. Israel entered into that threshold covenant with Yahweh at the first Passover in Egypt. However, they committed spiritual adultery, disobeying God's law, and worshiping false gods. As a result, God divorced them. However, Yahweh has promised that he will retake Israel as his bride. And when he weds them a second time, they will enter into the new covenant. Note that the blood of a lamb must be poured on the threshold of the house to initiate the threshold covenant. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slaughtered at the threshold of heaven, Jerusalem. Because of his sacrificial death and shed blood, Yahweh will retake Israel as his bride. This will happen in the millennial kingdom. In the meanwhile, God has called other people to be part of his kingdom. Those kingdom citizens are composed of Jews and Gentiles, together referred to as the church or bride of Christ. We as a church enjoy the blessings of the new covenant because of our relationship with the testator of the covenant, Jesus Christ. According to Jeremiah 31:33, Yahweh declares to the recipients of the new covenant that he will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. In other words, everyone who receives the gospel of the kingdom has God's law within them. Additionally, Ezekiel 36, 27 declares, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Every born-again, spirit-filled believer has the capacity and craving to obey God's law. If not, why not? The answer is simply they are not truly kingdom citizens. See, when someone claims to be a law-abiding citizen of the kingdom, but inwardly is not conforming to God's law, it's because God's law is not written upon their hearts. And because they do not possess God's law, they are not saved. That is, they are not kingdom citizens. What is our responsibility to the law? As kingdom citizens, our responsibility is to inwardly conform and outwardly obey God's law. Correctly understanding Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 17 has huge hermeneutical implications for us. The idea that only parts of the Old Testament are for us are those repeated in the New Testament is spurious at best. As Paul affirmed in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Old Testament, including the law, is as relevant for us today as the New Testament. It must be interpreted and implied through the same lens that Jesus used, namely, that it is God's revelation to humanity. As kingdom citizens study the Hebrew scriptures, we would do well to consider how Jesus applied those same scriptures in his life and ministry. Returning the law to its proper place was Jesus' purpose in the Sermon on the Mount. John MacArthur says Jesus lifted up the law in the Old Testament so high that he wound up exposing all the Pharisees and the scribes as hypocrites. Jesus arrives and opens his sermon by saying, Here's my standard of righteousness. Here's how you live in the world. And the base of it all is to be obedient to God's invaluable and unchanging law. Anyone who doesn't live by God's standards, who substitutes a man-made system, is more than a spirit, is no more than a spiritual phony. 
My friend, obedience to God's law still results in blessing. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Just because some aspects of the law cannot be performed today because conditions are untainable is not a valid excuse to randomly nullify God's law. For example, you and I cannot perform Levitical sacrifices in our backyards because they need to be performed in Jerusalem by a Levitical priest. However, we're still called to live sacrificial lives. All of God's law applies so long as it's implemented biblically. My friends, we are not in the position to pick and choose what laws we want to follow. We need to pursue all that we can in order to be wholly obedient to God. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do it according to all that is written in it. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come and ask you to forgive us for our mistreatment, our misapplications of the Hebrew Scriptures, particularly of your law. Father, if we are found guilty in your sight of even annulling the least of the commandments, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to take a hard look at ourselves and to examine ourselves and to begin conforming ourselves inwardly to your law. I pray that we would be careful not to just go through motions, not to be like the Pharisees who outwardly went through obedience, but inwardly were murdering and stealing and cheating and lying and so forth. Lord, I pray that as you've written the law upon our hearts, your spirit would lead us to be obedient to that law. And Father, help us to strive to be righteous. Help us to strive to imitate your holiness so that we might be pleasing in your sight. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.